0: Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Back in 2012, I was investigating a legendary aircraft carrier, the USS Yorktown, with the show Ghost Hunters. This was not the first ship I had investigated and would very much not be my last but I had an encounter on board that vessel that is indicative of just how wildly haunted these ships can be. During our investigation of the Yorktown, Adam, Barry, and I were standing on the flight deck of the carrier when, off in the distance, we saw a man walking very purposefully across the deck. He wasn't coming toward us, rather he was walking toward the other end of the ship. We were told we were alone on board, save for one security guard who would be in his office should we need him. We also had a radio directly to this man, so we immediately walkied him to see if he had left his post. He had not. So, who are we looking at? Had someone managed to make it on board? We called out to this man as he walked. He did not stop. He did not hesitate or slow down. Most people, when they catch sight of a camera crew, they have a response like a deer in the headlights. They freeze. Even so, most people who hear other people yelling for their attention at the very least slow down or look their way. This man did none of those things. He just kept walking, like he knew what he was doing and where he was going, until he disappeared behind the edge of the aircraft carrier's island, which is the command center for flight deck operations. Adam and I, puzzled, had begun running toward this man, our camera operator and sound guy in tow. Just seconds after the man rounded that corner, we were there as well. We were upset, someone had contaminated our investigation. We take what we do very seriously and we were very determined to know who this was and how they got on board. Except when we went around that corner, we found an empty space. There was one door, but it was padlocked shut with a lock that looked like it hadn't been touched in years judging by the amount of rust on it. The only place that man could have gone was overboard and we most definitely would have heard a splash. I was not surprised. As someone who has investigated over a dozen ships, some multiple times, I've found them well-stocked with ghosts and spirits, many still doing the jobs they so faithfully and dutifully performed in life. So join me as we take a trip to another of these haunted ships. She's lovingly called the Sea Witch. I'm Amy Bruni, and welcome to Haunted Road. The USS Salem actually had post-war beginnings. Plans for heavy cruisers to take on global navies predate World War II, of course, but when the war came to a close in early September 1945, America's latest and greatest answer to naval warfare was in its infancy. The United States military needed a fleet and one that hadn't seen the dogs of war and been chewed to pieces in the process. The US was solidifying its position in the Pacific and trying to outpace the Russians in naval supremacy. Construction on the USS Salem started on July 4, 1945 in Quincy, Massachusetts. The Salem launched on March 25, 1947. There were two iterations of the Salem before this heavy cruiser. The first Salem was named for the city in Massachusetts. The second Salem was named in honor of the first ship. And the third Salem was again named for the city in Massachusetts. She was the last of her kind and today is the only remaining heavy cruiser in the world, which really puts into perspective how special she is and how lucky New England is to have her. Now, some logistical history of the Salem because she has seen some things in her time. The Salem was commissioned at the Boston Navy Yard on May 14, 1949. The ship stopped in her namesake town on July 4, 1949, before undergoing three months of rigorous testing at Guantanamo Bay. After that, she again returned to Boston to undergo repairs. Her crew nicknamed her the Sea Witch, a name that has very much remained after spending three months aboard her dock at Salem. In May of 1950, Salem became the first flagship for the U.S. 6th Fleet, headquartered in Naples, Italy. During this, the first of seven deployments to the Mediterranean as fleet flagship, Salem punctuated her training at sea with ports in Malta, Italy, France, Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, and Algeria. Salem also reported to Guantanamo every year to complete training. She also participated in other trainings performed with other countries. Although she very notably never fired her mighty guns in anger, the Salem's very presence served as a stimulus for peace during the troubled times that became known as the Cold War. According to history books, she served as a lady of diplomacy rather than as a means of exerting brute force. She resumed her flagship duties in 1956 during the Suez Crisis. That battle over the Suez Canal was also an attempt to remove Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, from power. Israel first invaded Egypt, followed by the UK and France. They eventually extricated themselves, though, after the US, Soviet Union, and the UN applied political pressure. This event concluded the end of Britain's superpower status. But what about in pop culture? In 1956, the Salem was cast as the German pocket battleship Admiral Graf Spee in the Battle of the River Plate. There were significant differences between the Graf Spee and the Salem, not the least of which was that one was a German ship during World War II. The differences were explained by the historical fact that the ship's carpenters often camouflaged Graf Spee to resemble foreign vessels. Salem had another cinematic moment when she made a cameo in the action-packed thriller from Disney called The Finest Hour, starring Casey Affleck and Chris Pine in 2016. In 1958, Salem made the trek to Monaco for the celebration of the birth of Princess Grace Kelly's and Prince Rainier III's son, Albert II. All very interesting, but why is she so haunted? And what kind of activity do people experience on board? While the Salem never fired a shot in anger, she saw her fair share of death. Most famously, she was one of the first ships to arrive to provide aid during the Great Cephalonia earthquake in Greece in August of 1953. To put into perspective what happened on the islands, let me describe the conditions the Salem arrived to. Now, the 1953 Ionian earthquake also known as the Great Cephalonia Earthquake, struck the Southern Ionian Islands on August 12, 1953. In mid-August, there were over 113 recorded earthquakes in the region between Cephalonia and Zakynthos, and the most destructive was that August 12th earthquake. The event measured 6.8 on the moment magnitude scale, and it raised the whole island of Cephalonia by 24 inches and caused widespread damage throughout the islands of Cephalonia and Zakynthos. When disaster struck on that Wednesday, August 12th at 1120 a.m., Argostolian was a town of about 8,500 people, swollen by vacationers from the Greek mainland. It was the biggest community in the three Ionian Sea Islands, and it took the brunt of the quake. After the large quake, nothing was left of the city, but piles of bricks and splintered wood, a few cracked shells of houses, and shocked survivors crowding the Argostolian baysides. British medical officers with the destroyer Darling were the first to arrive with outside aid. They set up first aid stations on the beach and treated survivors. The Salem arrived Thursday morning, the first unit of the 6th Fleet to reach the scene. The Greek government sent two amphibious vessels and a contingent of soldiers, According to newspaper articles of the time, the doctors and orderlies of these ships treated perhaps a thousand casualties, but they never could confirm. Many said there were just too many to count. The most seriously hurt were evacuated. The rest remained on the beaches, bandaged and dull with shock, asking only to leave. Sailors aboard the Salem reported finding the local hospital leveled and a local insane asylum destroyed as well. Desperate nurses had chained patients of the asylum to trees. One medic from the Salem called it real snake pit stuff. They have got one nurse and one old attendant watching 50 inmates. There was a jail too, with about 250 prisoners. When the jail collapsed, the prisoners ran loose. Greek soldiers and police rounded them up and put them in an improvised stockade surrounded by barbed wire. Leading the American rescue work was Lieutenant R.B. Jacobs of the Salem, the ship's control officer from Revere, Massachusetts. He sent search teams into the hills and digging through town, looking for trapped people. They found scores of living victims trapped beneath debris. Some had been there for two days. They also found people hiding and afraid to return to Argostolian. Local legend said one day, Argostolian would fall into the sea, and as far as they were concerned, it was happening. There are many rumors as to how many people were treated on the actual ship itself. Most articles of the time point to makeshift hospitals and operating rooms being assembled on the shore. But it also stands to reason that some of the more seriously injured would have been brought aboard for treatment, then perhaps evacuated to other local hospitals. Many rumors point to the ship having been used as a morgue for the between 445 and 800 people killed, but this also remains unsubstantiated and considering the heavy presence of other rescue ships in the area, highly unlikely. Regardless, the tragedy of the Greek earthquakes and subsequent rescue mission surely left an indelible scar on the Salem and her crew. Today, there are reports of Greek-speaking ghosts aboard the Salem, including the apparition of an angry Grecian girl encountered in the mess hall. Folks claim she only speaks Greek and half her face is missing. There was also a ghost rumored to have been a civilian volunteer during the earthquake, who died by suicide after coming upon the corpse of his mutilated wife. A good story, but again, completely unproven. The rescue mission in Greece was not the only source of potential hauntings on board. There was at least one incident where sailors from another ship were brought aboard after an explosion. The Salem's medical facilities were better suited to treating them, but three perished. People have reported hearing footsteps when no one is around, others have heard disembodied voices and loud bangs. Chairs have also reportedly been thrown. The printer at the museum, Peter Bloomberg, reported a mysterious figure appearing before him in one of the ship's hallways. The figure stared at him, then descended the staircase. Peter was alone on the ship at the time. Salem's head archivist, John Connor, heard his name called when he was in a sleeping quarter. He also has heard mysterious footsteps that he can't find the source for. He says these happenings don't bother him, but that you get the feeling someone is watching you, and you get chills up your spine. There's the spirit of a man they call John, who is apparently the spirit of a former tour guide. Reportedly, people see him and talk to him, especially in the area of the anchor windlass room. There, the anchor would be reeled in and out. There are also rumors of babies crying, which doesn't seem to mesh historically. Some investigators have said babies were born on the Salem because in the hospital area, there is a table with stirrups. But, as any woman will tell you, those stirrups aren't always used just for childbirth. While women never served on the Salem, it does stand to reason perhaps this table and its stirrups were there for rescue efforts, though as of now, there is no documentation to verify any babies were born on the ship. The USS Salem was decommissioned in January of 1959. In 1981, there was talk of reactivating her service as she was still very capable, but the funding from Congress was not guaranteed, so she was not resurrected. In October 1994, the Salem came full circle and made her way to her birthplace, Quincy, Massachusetts. She's been a museum ship ever since. Up next, we will talk to paranormal investigator and ship volunteer Don De Cristofaro. He's a no-nonsense veteran and historian with some great ghost stories from the Salem. He's also a man who I think the ship has a soft spot in her heart for. Also, you'll hear about my experience on the Salem, one that I've never experienced before and have never encountered since. I'm sitting here now with Don De Cristofaro, who is a paranormal investigator who's very involved in the USS Salem. We have worked with him in the past. If you saw our episode of Kindred Spirits that we did on the ship, Don was our client there and just a very all-around solid dude who knows a lot about the history of the ship and I think has a very special relationship with the Salem. So thanks for uh, joining us, Don.
3: Oh, thanks for asking me, Amy. I appreciate it.
1: Of course. Now, we filmed on the Salem during the pandemic. That was one of our first cases that we kind of ventured out. And I know you were close to tours at the time. How have things changed at the Salem since then?
3: Well, I mean, we've gotten much more back to normal in terms of how we manage the tours. You know, we tried last year to do it as normally, I guess, is the only word I can use as possible. You know, but we split into smaller groups and kind of spread people out a little bit more which as you know on the ship isn't really an easy thing to do but this season you know we we have bigger groups now and of course we're not wearing masks at least for the time being right so things are much more the way they used to be at the moment
1: i'm fortunate in that i've actually been to the salem quite a few times and You know, I just, I love how involved everyone is with the ship and just kind of keeping her in this state of availability to people to come and check out. Now, I know there's a lot of paranormal investigations on board, but what else happens on the Salem?
3: The ship is open all weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday during the summer, open to the public. And it's not just the Salem, it's the United States Naval Shipbuilding Museum. Um, The museum spaces, Below decks, most of the areas that were cruise berthing when the ship was active have been converted into museum spaces. And Quincy has a very, very long and rich shipbuilding tradition and and the Salem is a great celebration of that. So she's open quite a bit. And there there are other events that take place, community type events on the ship as well. You know, the volunteers, as you said, are are all very, very invested. And working as hard as they can to keep the ship up. And we worked very hard to make sure the ship's not going to go anywhere, to be frank.
1: Yeah, thankfully. Now, do you think that any of the hauntings on board have anything to do with the various artifacts that you have brought in for the museums?
3: Well, it's kind of interesting that you should say that because just recently, we have started to hear some music that's much older than the ship itself. And we're looking at some of the artifacts in the museum that are related to the shipyard rather than the ship and trying to determine whether or not some of this stuff has something to do with those objects instead of the ship itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. It wouldn't surprise me because I remember just going through the collections there, just amazed at everything you guys have curated A lot of those artifacts have seen some, you know, really interesting times in history. So who knows what you could have brought on board in addition to the spirits you already have lately.
3: Oh, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. I guess I guess, crazy active is is the best expression I can use. You know, I mean, we have our quiet nights like everybody else does, but they, they are few and far between. And to the point where we're kind of spoiled when we go other places because of the volume of activity on the ship. The shadow activity is picking up. The noise activity is ridiculous at this point. The EVPs are becoming much more clearer. And I think, as you know, they have context, a lot of them, which is, which is really awesome.
1: Yeah, and I love that. That's kind of my favorite kind of haunting. you know. And to this day, the Salem is where I had one of my strangest paranormal experiences. And I, when I try to explain it to people, I guess it doesn't seem... That intense, but for me, it really was because basically, I was standing in the mess hall area and I was looking kind of towards that little it's it's next to the kitchen area it's like a it's kind of a storage area, I think for pots and pans or what have you, and
3: the two scullery the two scullery areas,
1: yeah, and I'm staring at that, and I see these kind of twinkling lights up in the corner, and my brain is processing it as. There is some sort of window there, and there is some sort of like ship going by with a mast or like some sort of lights going by. And I kind of just filed it away as, you know, something outside that I'm seeing through a window. And then it dawned on me there's no window there. And I'm just looking at these little twinkling lights and I'm thinking, what am I looking at right now? And it went on for like a solid. 20 seconds, I feel like. And then they just kind of stopped. And I just remember, like, almost, (laughs) I thought something medically was, was wrong with me. I was like, like, what's happening? Am I having like a stroke or like, and I started kind of having a little panic attack. and I was like, no, no. And literally later, it was either later on that day, or the next night, you just happened to run into us in the library. And you were like, Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, sometimes people see these little twinkling fairy lights in this area which is exactly what I saw. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I was very thankful. And I, I don't think we really addressed that part of it on the show, because I think we just saw you in passing. I don't know that there were cameras rolling. But I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, okay, it wasn't in my head. I don't need to go see a medical doctor. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that was strange. I mean, I don't know what causes that. What, what do you think? I know other people have seen that. What do you think causes something like that?
3: Well, it's kind of interesting. We We're at the point now where we've determined that there are a lot of spirits on the ship we weren't aware of previously, that maybe aren't from the ship itself, that are from the shipyard and things like that. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that there are many of them that aren't quite strong enough to really manifest in a solid way, that is to say in an audio way or visually. And I've come to believe that the lights are their manifestations something that's not quite strong enough to do something that's going to jump out at us, but that are making themselves known in in a little bit less obvious way.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I still, to like I said, it just still stands as one of my strangest experiences, because many paranormal experiences are kind of fleeting or quick, but this I just stared at for so long without even realizing what I was looking at. I wonder, too, just because how often do you all host paranormal investigations on board, would you say?
3: Uh, Pretty much every weekend now. This past weekend was both Friday and Saturday night.
1: Ah, and I think that other spirits might be coming in. You know, we've seen that before with these locations where you're hosting investigations on a regular basis and you have a bunch of people sitting in the dark, just intently thinking that they would like to see a ghost or make contact and anything who wants to talk or anyone who wants to talk can come forward. And it makes you wonder, you know, how many of these kind of wayward spirits sense that and that kind of attracts them to a place like that.
3: Oh, that's definitely a possibility. You know, I mean... People bring things with them as well, and we think that's part of it. We've had psychics come aboard, sensitives who, as soon as they walk into the main wardroom, which is where we kind of gather as groups, who say that they're just coming at them from all directions as soon as they come aboard. So, you know, as I said, they're not all pronounced. They don't all make themselves known to us on a regular basis. But there's no doubt in our minds now that we can't even estimate the number of entities there are aboard the ship.
1: Okay, so I know that obviously, they say famously that Salem never fired a shot in anger, right? So never really saw any action per se, but definitely saw its share of tragedy. Like there was the, the earthquake rescue mission, and I'm sure a number of deaths on board for other reasons. Who do you think is haunting the ship maybe that actually did spend time on the ship? What have you seen evidence wise of that?
3: Well, the most pronounced spirits, at least the ones that we've made contact with, seem to be from an accident that took place uh, about three years after the earthquake, when the Salem had left Boston and was on the way back to Greece or the Mediterranean. And she was sailing with a destroyer named John R. Pierce. And the Pierce was doing some kind of uh, anti-aircraft practice, shooting at a towed target. For some reason, they stopped the practice, so stopped the drill, and then when they restarted again, what I'm told is that they reloaded a gun that had already been loaded.
1: Mm.
3: So when they fired it, the gun mount exploded, and one guy was killed immediately, but several other guys were brought from the Pierce by helicopter over to the Salem because she's much bigger and had much better facilities, and several of those guys died aboard Salem. So I think that in terms of people that spent significant amount of time on the ship, those are the guys that are most pronounced at this point.
1: I see. And what kind of activity do you get stemming from them? Are you ever getting any names or anything like that?
3: We're starting to get some names. You know, and that's one of the difficult things because of so many of the tools we use are prone to yes or no and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. It's kind of hard to get them to express themselves in other ways, but we have a list of names that we try One of the problems we have is that the crew list, you know, the Salem, once she was active, had about 1,600 guys aboard. And over a 10-year period, you're talking guys that spent multiple years, so you're talking 10,000 guys anyway, and our solid crew list is about 600 names. We try as hard as we can. We ask a lot of names. We have sensitives that come up with names, and we use those names as much as we can. But there are very few guys that we actually have names for.
1: Yeah, that's hard. I mean, we ran into that as well, just when we were investigating, you know, I'm always very heavy on the history. I love and really want to identify some of these spirits, especially the ones who just come off as more aggressive or insistent. You know, I always am concerned that there's some reason why they're trying to kind of break through so much. And I remember going through some of the manifests and just having a lot of trouble because you don't know, like, are you dealing with someone who actually passed away here? Or are you dealing with someone who just felt like a really strong emotional attachment and is choosing to revisit for some reason? And so it's just so hard to narrow it down. And like you said, lots of tools that use yes or no answers, which isn't, doesn't help a lot.
3: And of course, it's easier now than it was you know, years ago with newspaper databases and things of that nature, You struggled to find the name John R. Pierce, for example, associated with USS Salem, and then you kind of work backwards from there, and we were able to find some names by getting to obituaries of guys that were killed aboard the ship or that that were injured aboard the Pierce and died aboard the Salem. So that's how you do it. It's painstaking and takes a lot of work, but that's such a huge part of what we do, especially at a location like the Salem. You know, the history is just so important in terms of the paranormal and not the paranormal. Yeah. So we work very, very hard at it and we're, and we're trying, but it's not easy.
1: No, it's not. Have you been able to dispel any popular rumors about the history of the ship? Or Is there anything that you think people have talked about that's just completely untrue at this point?
3: Well, I'm not going to say that we found our completely untrue, but... There are some rumors about the ship that don't make a whole lot of sense when you really think about it. You know, I think when you guys were there, we talked a little bit about the so-called morgue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they talk about bodies stacked on bodies in the ship's makeshift morgue. But, you know, when you think about it, the only time there were that many deaths at one time aboard the ship was during the Greek earthquake. And when you think about it, you wonder why would they if the ship is in Greece and the people are Greek, why would they have all those bodies on the ship? Right. They would take them off the ship. They would take them home. That's something that a lot of people like to talk about, you know, and and that room in particular is something that a lot of people like to talk about. It's called the butter room. And, you'll hear people say, you know, it's kind of wild because nobody really knows why they call it the butter room. And personally, I think it probably has something to do with the metal plaque above the door that says butter room.
1: (laughs) You know, you got to use that research brain of yours. You know, (laughs) that's a tough one. (laughs) You know,
3: I'm I'm not going to say we've thoroughly dispelled things, but there are a lot of talk about the ship, which to some extent we like. I mean, those are the kinds of things that bring people to the ship. And if you burst their balloon a little bit when you get here, that's okay, because the ship usually makes up for it in, uh, in what it shows them over the course of a night.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that probably the actual history is even more fascinating than the history people might have heard through that kind of historical game of telephone that people love to play. But for some reason, makeshift morgues are a big deal. Like, I've investigated so many places that have supposedly become a makeshift morgue for some sort of disaster. And I don't think I've ever been able to substantiate one of them. And I think I revisited it again when we were researching for this episode of the podcast. And I think we found it on one like ghost tour company's blog, but there's zero, you know, historical information that we could find to verify it. So who knows?
3: And I don't think that's a coincidence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also I dug up a lot of information about other haunts that people have seen on board there, including Someone reporting a dog, or they called it a hellhound or something, in in the mess hall. Have you heard of that one before?
3: Well, I can tell you that the first paranormal experience I had aboard the ship was hearing a dog.
1: Wow. And someone else said they got an EVP of a pig, too, which is just not what you would expect at all. Why do you think that would happen?
3: (laughs) I've heard that. I'm not entirely sure it sounds like a pig to me, but...
1: (laughs) Maybe it's the dog. (laughs) I
3: I guess... Anything's possible. You know, it's interesting, though, when you think, while it's a naval ship, that situation in Greece in 1953 must have been really, really chaotic. And the possibilities abound when you think about what may or may not have come or have been brought aboard the ship. So while I personally think it's kind of unlikely that anyone has ever heard or recorded a pig,
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I'm not going to say it's entirely impossible because, as I said, people in that kind of distress, who the heck knows what they felt like they wanted to bring with them aboard the ship or what they were concerned about. And I bet you in a lot of cases, the people taking care of them said, fine, if that's going to make these people feel a little bit better, that's okay with us.
1: Yeah. Now, what would you say is like the most prevalent type of activity people encounter on board?
3: Well, at this point in time, I'm going to say it's shadow activity. I think, you know, we're at the point now where a couple of weeks ago a group came aboard and before we even started investigating, when I was giving them a tour of the ship with the lights on just to kind of show them where we were going to be going later on in the night and things of that nature, we had a shadow run across the hallway in front of us as we were making our way up the ship. So These are the kinds of things that are happening on a really regular basis. Now, I'm going to say shadow activity right now.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I've I've investigated a few ships in my time and shadows seem to be very prevalent. And I don't know if it's because it's that kind of like residual activity of people kind of making their rounds or just still kind of tending to their duties or what, but it's just hard to think, you know, when we go into these places, it's our groups of, you know, however many people, but then you think about how many people were actually on board at any one time and what that must have looked like. And how they just knew their way around so well that they would bolt from place to place. So it kind of makes sense that you would see these shadows running up and down these ladder steps and down the hallways. It's so strange.
3: Absolutely. And that's one of the great things about the Salem is is that it's such a mixed bag. There are sailors who died aboard the ship, as we all know. There are civilians, people that were Greek that were killed during the earthquake uh, who are still aboard. And then, as you well know, we have my friend back aft, who I don't think died aboard the ship, but I think this is a guy who this is where he chose to come and spend eternity. So I think pretty much, you know, whatever you think, whatever you look at in terms of these entities, I think they're represented aboard the ship.
1: Yeah, now that gentleman, for people who aren't familiar, he's in kind of the mess hall area And I know when we investigated, he swore at us repeatedly in our recorders, but he seems to have kind of an affinity towards you. How are things going with that?
3: Well, it's kind of interesting. You're right. He and I, I think because we're kind of both grumpy old sailors, I think we (laughs) kind of developed a relationship over the years. But it's kind of interesting. We have some new things happening on the ship. We have an entity that has kind of become dominant. And the chief seems to be kind of laying low at the moment. We've had sensitives tell us that he is going to just kind of sit back and let us figure out what's going on, and, and then he'll come back. He's not bothered by this entity, but he just doesn't want anything to do with it. So he seems to be kind of laying low at the moment. We don't hear from him very much.
1: Well, I mean, he's not shy. So I feel like when he's ready, he'll probably very much make himself known.
3: No, he most certainly is not shy. That EVP that you recorded of him telling me exactly what he thought I should do was about as clear as a recording I've ever heard, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure he dropped an F-bomb, if I remember correctly.
3: He certainly did.
1: Yeah, that was very, very clear. So, <laughs> so you're welcome for that. That's what we bring out in the ghosts when we come around. So
3: you said that you said you would had never been so happy to hear somebody tell you to f off as
1: uh, as that. Ah, <laughs> oh, too funny. Um, now, is there any activity aboard that you would consider to be potentially dangerous?
3: I don't think so. People certainly get touched regularly aboard. But never anything of any consequence. You know, women occasionally have somebody blow in their ear. I'm kind of let my, you know, I'm working at home now. I don't have to go to the office. So I have nobody to impress. And I've I'm kind of let my hair go. And when I go back aft, I think the chief lets himself be known by pulling my hair occasionally.
1: It's probably telling you you need a haircut.
3: Telling me I need a haircut. <laughs> but uh, like I said, this new entity is an enigma to us. And we're trying to figure them out. We don't think that he's entirely friendly, but I certainly wouldn't characterize anything aboard the ship as dangerous.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people wonder that. To me, the only thing I ever worry about in spaces like that is that it's not very easily traversed. You know, there's a lot of places you can trip. There's a lot of places you could fall. And so, you know, I always warn people like if you do get startled, you know, make sure you know where Like, always keep about your wits, know where you are, stay planted, because, you know, you could jump and accidentally fall down a set of stairs or something. I think that's the most dangerous I think anything could be.
3: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of part of my spiel when I give people before we get going. And you know, it's a big ship. So you can't expect a one time visitor to know their way around. But I do try to tell people to try to be as aware as possible of where they are in relation to hatches, in relation to ladders. You know, you certainly don't want somebody to turn and dart the wrong direction real quick, because if they don't know where they are or where they're going, there can be very nasty consequences there. There are a couple of places on the ship that when I give my tour, I'll stop in a certain place because it's concerning that. You walk through a hatch and there's an open hatch right on the floor next to you. So there are definitely areas like that that can be dangerous. And we do the best we can to warn people about that and warn them to keep their wits about them when they're walking around the ship.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a maze. We were really fortunate. We were there, you know, for four days or so. And we have our small crew and us. So there's probably 10 of us total And there were many times where I would go check on a camera or something or go try to look for some information in one of the museum areas or something and then just be completely turned around. And I think if I remember correctly, there might be yellow stripes or some sort of stripe or something on the floor. I would cling to that thing. I would find that and know that I would be able to find my way back. But, you know, if we didn't do a head count at the end of the night, I very well could still be there on the Salem months later, lost.
3: And that wouldn't be an entirely bad thing.
1: No, I mean, my daughter would probably miss me, but it's fine. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, there, there, is a, there is a broad yellow line that goes down the passageways on the main deck. When I give tours, I tell people, just think back to when you were in prison and follow the yellow line. Uh, And as long as you don't stray, you should be okay. But you're right. The museum areas in particular, it's very, very easy to get turned around because they're all connected. And that's the one part of the ship where you could go down a ladder. And if you come up a different ladder, you could be on the other side of the ship.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I did that a couple of (laughs) times. So... Yeah, But I made it. (laughs) it. So ultimately, with the ghosts on board, the Salem, and just, you know, what you do there and everything, what are your hopes for the Salem over time?
3: You know, that's a good question. And it's something we kind of wrestle with a lot of the time. We have people come aboard who talk to us about helping people cross over. And, you know, if you're in a position to help these entities, then certainly that's what you want to do but we wrestle with it because it's what we do. Mm -hmm. So we do kind of go back and forth, but we have been able to help some people go over. And there are certainly enough entities aboard the ship that are looking for loved ones and things of that nature that ultimately we would love to help get to where they ultimately want to be. And that's really all you can, you know, I don't think there's anything else you can really hope for. I mean, we we certainly hope to make the Salem well-known enough that Uh, enough people visit her that she can stay in Quincy. I think that's where she belongs. And it's a constant battle to keep her there. But yeah, other than that, I think, uh, you know, helping the entities as best we can. I think that's really all we can hope for.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that I've found as I've investigated for so long. You know, I definitely kind of thought of that idea of crossing things over long ago. And I think over time, my theory has evolved to this idea, which I talk about in my book a lot. But this idea that I can't cross someone over to a place that I don't even know for sure exists. (laughs) And so I've been striving more to figure out why they're still here. And that usually produces more reaction or activity. Like I do feel like they're here, not because they don't know where they need to go, but because there's something that they left behind, you know, that kind of classic unfinished business. And, you know, I could see that really being the case with the Salem. You know, there were a lot of lives that ended very suddenly, either on board or because of the earthquake, or people who may have left something behind emotionally, even if they didn't die on board.
3: Oh, sure. You know, one of the entities that I speak to, primarily with dowsing rods, I found, is a young man that we call Nico, a Greek man. And, and he seems to enjoy talking to us. You know, he always comes to us and we enjoy interacting with him. But I always feel terrible after we talk to him because he tells us that he's looking for his family. And you think, man, if there was anything you could do to help this individual, whether it was send him to where his family is or bring his family forward to him, whatever it would be. Geez, you can't help but wishing you you could do.
1: Yeah, that's hard. I mean, we have done in the past where we found kind of wayward spirits like that, where we have tracked down their family line or their ancestors and descendants even, and kind of produced that, like brought them actual birth certificates and death certificates and census records and just showed them like, this is what happened to your family. This is where they ended up. This is, you know, and tell them the story and that sometimes help. But until you can identify Nico, for sure, that might be really hard to do, especially with a mass casualty like that.
3: Sure. Yep. you're absolutely right. I don't think there are any records in terms of in terms of the Greek situation, in terms of the names.
1: No, I looked. I looked. You can't uh, find out who was brought on board and who wasn't, things like that. So it's tough. It is really tough. Well, how now with the Salem, how, what can people do? They can take tours. They can go on investigations. How do they find out all that information?
3: Well, the, the Salem's website is uh, uss-salem.org, and they can get plenty of information there. My organization, the Greater Boston Paranormal Associates, we're all over the place, www.thegbpa.com. We're on Facebook as well, and we have a page now called the USS Salem Paranormal Experience on Facebook. That's where we advertise our events and things of that nature. There are plenty of opportunities to get aboard the ship, but I always try to urge people if they're local anyway, it's a great take You know, on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. She's kind of beat up on the outside, but once you get aboard, she is amazingly well-preserved. It's a great thing, a great place to go and get a good understanding of our shared history.
1: Yeah, I find it to be fascinating. I think that New England is very lucky to have her. You know, I brought my daughter when we were filming, and she just loved exploring and learning all about the history there. So hats off to you and everyone associated with the Salem for keeping her local and keeping her going in some way, because, you know, these kind of opportunities are becoming harder and harder to come by for people to experience.
3: Yeah, they sure are I appreciate that, but there's a, there are a lot of people involved in not only in, I mean just in doing what we do. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very fortunate. you know, I tell people the ship is my obsession, and I was fortunate to find a group of people who are dumb enough to <laughs> to buy into it uh, but the truth is i'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world in terms of the team that we've put together and and that's just the paranormal side. The ship itself has a very, very dedicated group of volunteers, and uh, far too many to, to mention.
1: Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I can't wait to get back, hopefully very soon. I think this is going to be great for people to get a greater understanding of all the work that goes on behind the scenes and also what they can expect to encounter if they climb on board the USS Salem.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And we would love to have you back anytime.
1: Yes, thank you so much. The USS Salem, like so many of the haunted places we visit, holds a special place in the hearts of the many volunteers and benefactors who work tirelessly to keep her afloat. When you visit the ship, just about every volunteer you meet is a vet, and while the Salem is no longer in service, you can tell the sense of pride and nostalgia they feel as they show you around. It's also, ghosts aside, just a wonderful place to visit and take in some very important history. So, I urge you, Next time you're in the New England area, pay a visit to the United States Naval Shipbuilding Museum and the USS Salem. If you see Dawn, tell him I say hi. And if you get lost in her depths, don't forget, the yellow line leads back to the top deck. Until next time, I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road.
0: Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.